buckle up and although by the time you hear this it will be far after the date i was wishing you ahead of time uh that may the fourth be with you uh and it is 12 40 p.m it is 12 40 a.m is why i'm doing this i was recording uh nachman uh story and something to do with witches uh so this is also part of how i'm here uh that it is may the 4th and i have been wanting to and just am interested in Also, as the title is, uh, just conveniently, uh, as well, I have May the 4th Bewitch You, because I was talking about the Salem Witch Trials and Erga, and we're not going to get off in the ergotism thing, it was already beyond too much coming up here, and in advance, uh, if you're not down for it, uh, I do a lot of rambling and asides because I think elliptically it's partly a post-seizuristic thing and way that I make connections. And uh, also that because of Star Wars, I'm going to be talking about that. But primarily this is uh, for a very different fandom, which is to say uh, folks familiar with the Samuel saga, conventionally called as the biblical uh, first and second book of Samuel. But thanks to Robert Alter, uh, and I know this is jumping around a bit, but uh, go to Abe Books, not Amazon, and get a used uh, copy of the David story. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Also, if you haven't watched the Star Wars movies, at least the original trilogy, uh, try to, you know, make sense of everybody, you know, constantly arguing over which ones are the best or how they came back and revised it and screwed it up. And uh, likewise, there are conversations uh about biblical literature that are also complex and heated. So uh, this ambitious crossover is going to be very interesting because uh, I was just going to read the chapter with the Witch of Endor, uh, but it's three chapters from the end of Act 1. They call it first and second books of Samuel, but really it is an epic saga and uh, this is at the end of Act One. So heads up in advance. I'm going to enjoy this immensely and listening back over it. I hope friends and family that I may send this link to. That I also hope first and foremostly of everybody hearing this that you're in good health and safely quarantined. Uh, whenever this may reach you, I will send a bit of forth your way. Uh, and generally, sorry, just <clears throat> this one has some very high level connectivity and I'm bringing some really heavy stuff together because 
I've been audiobooking some stuff and talking about things with the Samuel saga, but I'm going to read right to the end of Act One, and it's going to be a hell of a thing. And this is dedicated wholeheartedly to Robert Alter uh, and his magnificent way of translating and commentating on these books, uh, whose translation, again, I am using for this, and he has extraordinary, uh, enlightening commentary. I'll be reading some of that and talking about some of the ongoing motifs, like uh, the thing with Saul's clothing, where that occur elsewhere in the book, but shape your understanding of things at certain moments and hopefully make this entertaining to people who may know Star Wars, but not uh <clears throat> the brilliant uh the the adventure that is the Samuel saga with Saul and David and people that the world should know more of like Joab or Yoav uh Yoab whatever that uh I'm writing some stuff I'm writing this isn't about my biblical fiction. This is about Star Wars, and this is about uh, what I'm bringing together here. Uh, the thing with Saul's clothing, just to get people limbered up uh, for, like, mentally to get into the state and understand how deeply... Uh, words and motifs and stuff are connected. There's this thing about Saul's clothing that is a motif, and this is something I wouldn't know if not <clears throat> for Alter, uh, that throughout the story, there are connections between Saul's clothing and the state of his kingship. Uh, and this comes up a few times in what I'm going to be reading. But for example, uh, the fact that in one of the, if not the most famous story in uh, the book, the that of David and Goliath, the people have heard a two or three minute version of, but in the... If I have a moment to uh, hype something of mine, although I'm not doing this yet at all with uh, this podcast, I'm not reading any of my own stuff yet. It's all public domain literature and uh, this of Alter with all respect. Uh, but uh, High Noon on the Border of Blood is the name of the treatment I did of uh, the scene of David and Goliath. And that ran to 27 pages because I'm bringing in this context and getting people into this world that a lot of people don't know. But uh, I'm doing this massive and timely crossover while the fourth is with me. Uh, and with all of us.
Um, oh yes, and in my notes written down, the big thing uh, of this, uh, I'm also going to be talking, oh, I didn't say, uh, finish that thought with David and Goliath, Saul gives David his armor, and there's a bunch to break down in that, and that image, and that is entirely to Robert Alter, uh, without whom I would never have been able to write that story either, uh, because I formed the entire story starting from uh, this motif and this very small, uh, seemingly very small detail when Saul, when Goliath comes forward from the lines of the Philistines and he challenges the Israelites to a one-on-one -on -one combat and that uh, whichever of them will win, the other nation will be their slaves. Pretty simple and straightforward, Bronze Age, you know? Uh, but then nobody wants to go forward and Saul, who is the king, and uh, actually Samuel warns of this, back in chapter eight, uh, with the practice of the king saying uh, about why he's uh, against the whole friggin' idea of kings and he's never happy with Saul. The whole book, like when you get into it and with the language, it is incredibly funny. It is profound and it is, uh, the language is extraordinarily uh, dense in ways that, uh, like rich, not like, uh, uh, not dense in the sense of they're hard to get, but rather that when you understand the references and the connections, that there is a lot to be gained from recognizing that the image of Saul's kingship in his clothing is a going motif. So when it says that David is, uh, that Saul gives David his armor, when David steps up, uh, that is actually uh, Saul giving away his kingly power in uh, doing this, uh, it's a very loaded symbolic image when you understand that. And likewise, the fact that because Saul is uh, taller, head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and that's the one reason Samuel picked him to be a king, which is also farcical, you know, is in no other way qualified to be king and he's an idiot and he's uh increasingly paranoid and has mood swings like the the it's a incredibly good read and if you happen to be quarantined in a hotel or motel please reach into your bedside drawer take it out feel free to follow along it's a lot of fun. And if you have Disney Plus and you haven't yet, and I do not have it, but I watched the first three of The Mandalorian at a uh, buddy's place, uh, 
Disney Plus, check up the original trilogy, Star Wars. Uh, amazing, amazing saga as well. Which is why, with all of this understood, and a bit sad about Saul's clothing, uh, and other in-notes... Oh, yes, Absalom, uh, I want to shout out. And the fact that I'm going to be comparing Saul uh, and his journey and that of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars and uh, what uh, Joseph Campbell famously with the Hero with a Thousand Faces, talking about how all stories are the same stories. One of the other things I'm going to be doing tonight is uh, <laughs> unintentionally, but in a way, this is going to be challenging uh, that story structure uh, because Luke's story and the appeal of the... Uh, the book, uh, I'm sorry, it's late and I, you know, quarantine everything, uh, stuff's all jumbled around, uh, and I'm pulling together <clears throat> some incredibly high-level story materials from two very different sides as, uh, of devoted followers who know the material of each work and its surrounding context, and I'm trying to uh, include things from both. Uh, and if you bear with me, I am going to walk this tightrope and thank you, Anchor, enormously for letting me do it for free and just put it out there. So, and we're going through the end of the book, or the... The end of Act 1, folks. If you want to follow along, first book of Samuel, chapter 28. And uh, Star Wars, episode 4. If, you're, if you don't know this, uh, don't start with episode 1. There are some people who uh, will start screaming and rolling around if you even suggest that there's anything worth doing with the trilogy of the prequels, but the first one made in 1977. And if you watch no other of the series, watch Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, uh, same as uh, follow along at First Book of Samuel, Chapter 28. As we look at the journey of Saul to uh, the conclusion of this character, if you're looking just at that arc, that's between chapters nine to the end of Samuel with chapter eight that I've spoken about quite a bit recently, the practice of the king in chapter eight, where Samuel uh, has a whole thing he says to the people of Israel when they want a king, and he says it's a bad idea, kings are a bad idea that that's 
another whole part of why this book is precious. And you can see when you really read it, you can see why it's been written out over and over again by hand for thousands of years before there was movable type. And that when there was, this was in the collection of literature that was first deemed uh, something to put in print with the Gutenberg Bible, which incidentally is where a lot of the things in the other podcasts, if you look in the, uh, I'm not linking it to this description because, you know, you, you can look it up, but uh, I'm linking to the obscure literature that I'm audiobooking in, uh, excuse me, in each podcast. Uh, so if you just want to take the recommendations in those uh, and skip the rambling and commentary, uh, usually you can do that. But this is not that case. Either you take it or leave it, and you think it's funny to compare uh, things more substantial. But, for example, the fact that by episode six, uh, the return of the Jedi, that Luke is wearing black when he was wearing white, and that's because he uh, is struggling with the light and the dark side. Uh, and the state of Saul's clothing is significantly more nuanced and often comical and finally tragic, which is where we're going from this idea of David, this boy in the armor of a tall man clunking around and saying, this doesn't fit and casting it off before he goes to fight the giant, uh, which you could see is just such a little moment, a little action. But when you understand these things, and all of us uh, owe a thanks to Robert Alter yet again for my being able to get this to people in a way that is palatable, if rambling, having told you all these things, to understand that what he's doing there the original writer of Samuel, of what is called the Book of Samuel, uh, was saying uh, in having Saul cast off or divest his kingly power into this boy at the first sign that someone else is going to fight his battles, exactly the thing Samuel said. In, and I know... Uh, if you get it or don't get it, you know, I could be talking about Millennium Falcons and the fact that uh, this doesn't make sense because the X-Wing wouldn't be able to fit through whatever or pod racing, you know, and uh, take it or leave it. I'm talking about lingo and stories from uh, the Samuel saga, not the Star Wars universe. So, uh there isn't a Death Star, but there is uh, a bunch of uh, explosions and carnage and stuff that uh, could very easily fit into Game of Thrones. Uh, 
And when David puts on the armor and clunks around in it a bit, he says, uh, this doesn't fit. And he casts it off. And this too is a hugely symbolic action because he's being given the power of the king, but it's Saul's power and David doesn't need anything of Saul to go out and fight this giant. Uh, and you can make of that whatever the fuck you will, and you should make everything of it because uh, that's a very, that's maybe the most direct contrast of the two of them, actually, that moment. Uh, if you see that as a anchor or a linchpin, I was just doing it for the story, but it's actually a super key moment in the relationship of the two of them, uh, King Saul and the boy David, who will be king after Saul. Uh, And David really follows Luke's story uh, much more in being the humble son of a shepherd uh, who goes out to fight this giant and win the hand of the princess uh, from the king uh, is a fairy tale structure as well. And that's interesting. And Alter points that out actually. And chapter 17, but once you see that, you also can't unsee it. Uh, David and the giant, hand of the princess, uh, rule of threes stuff. Uh, But we're here to talk about Saul, uh, who is a tragic and uniquely complex figure, as is David and other characters in what is very spare, and often uh, modern sounding dialogue, but uh, but like the thing I'm demonstrating here as a way of getting everyone warmed up with Saul and David and the exchange of the armor. Uh, we're gonna be talking about Saul and the Witch of Endor. Uh, and we're hmm. there is one other no you know what I don't need to mention this because I could actually throw the sheet away uh, I know exactly when Absalom is going to come up as a, uh, <laughs> as a comparative to something in these last three chapters of the uh, first act. Uh, And we're gonna see what kind of figure Saul cuts. Uh, So, with one last no, not last, but last before I begin, uh, great and total thanks to the brilliant Robert Alter. I will be using his translation and saying some of uh, his notes 
but also uh, some of his commentary and what I've done with uh, of this first half hour that Anchor gives me in recording as I'm at 24 minutes. Uh, excuse me. I've used most of that in telling you things that I've gotten out of study of the book and the saga and things I know from elsewhere. Uh, and some of the things I'm going to be reading here will also be my own impressions and takeaways as if there is any mistaking the fact that a lot of the things coming out of my mouth are, uh, just coming from a short distance. But for the sake of keeping it short and a shorter future recording, I'm going to cut this right here and come back as if it's a new episode at uh, the 28th chapter of Samuel. And for that, please forgive me if I repeat some things because this next segment is going to be uh, read with a future audience in mind that will not have heard this first one. So uh, it is 1.05 a.m. Uh, on the 4th of May, which is why spontaneously I decided to do this thing at midnight. Uh, here we friggin' go. May the force be with you all, and, uh, Zygazent. It is 109, the stroke of 109, actually, it turned as I hit record, uh, 109 a.m., uh, May the 4th be with you, 2020. Uh, although uh, it is probable that most of you are hearing this after the day. Um, actually, you know, it would make it more probable is if I actually post this on social media and stuff. Because... Uh, I haven't done enough of these that I've wanted to just promote when I had a few. I wanted to have a number of author, authors and stuff. Uh, let's say put Endor on. Okay. Um, so... I just did a prologue in getting everyone warmed up for this story and myself. So uh, if you're hearing the start of this in the raw first cut, uh, please excuse if I am repeating stuff. There are important motifs in the Samuel saga, which is what Tonight's story is primarily, but because of some peculiar cross-connections and uh, the, 
you know, seizureistic tendencies, a thing I can do or I do more now. Uh, although just to be clear, I have not had one and Kanahora will not have one again anytime soon. I am medicated and CBD'd and, uh, you know, take care of myself, do it. I can, uh, and hope you are as well. Hope this finds everybody, uh, well and safely quarantined and, uh, most of the time I'm using this podcast for audiobooking, uh, public domain fiction or literature, uh, now that everyone has time to read and, uh, putting the links to like the project Gutenberg, uh, where I'm getting the stories from and you can get for free online and onto your Kindle so if you just want to take the recommendations and skip the uh, the meandering, which is how I think and how I tell stories and I'm telling this one uh, and trying to make it intelligible, if ever so circuitous for people who don't know why May the 4th is such an enormous fandom thing for everybody uh, who loves the Star Wars saga and are deeply uh, knowledgeable of it and passionate about the series. And as one of these random connections from this previous to this, where I just did a story of Reb Nachman connecting something to the Salem Witch Trials and ergotism, which is a fascinating uh, thing and uh, not what we're here for right now. Uh, because of these things together, uh, I've had the idea to record the very interesting scene of King Saul and the Witch of Endor, which occurs write it, and I'm going to read through the end of Act 1 of the Samuel Saga, uh, which, uh, if you happen to be quarantined in a hotel or motel, uh, feel free to reach into your bedside drawer and pull out the Bible there. You can follow along, and anybody else who cares to, you can search this or otherwise have your own copy handy. Uh, first book of Samuel, chapter 28. And I will be reading from Robert Alter's extraordinary translation, which I urge you to buy from Abe Books, used books, not Amazon. Uh, get the David story, his translation of it. It is extraordinary. And as I explained before, and we'll, you'll see in the course of this, that I am using and learning from some commentary of his and things that he says about ongoing motifs, like very significantly 
that of how Saul's clothing uh, is related to the state of his kingship. So although I talked about this in depth in the first part of the way this is being recorded and going out, I've started a new section that will be closer to where the reading starts. And when I actually do that in five or 10 minutes, possibly, because I'm going to briefly go over the same things that I had listed out to discuss in the uh, first chunk so that everyone can follow along, whether you're more familiar with uh, the book of Samuel, uh, which really the Samuel saga with an act one and act two. And what I'm reading right now is from 28 to 31, which is the end of act one. And if you're watching any Star Wars movie, if you're looking at in the course of what I'm reading, if you want to get into that series, you want to go to episode four. A lot of people have strong opinions, as with uh, biblical literature and uh, things thereof. People have strong opinions about the first three episodes and apparently nine, although I have not seen it yet. And regardless of opinions, I'll watch it and I'll make my own opinion. And it's still going to be that the eighth one is the best. Uh, Although, you know, the original trilogy, four, five, and six, is the reason that people get tattoos of the characters and uh, have had Star Wars style uh, everything. And the reason that uh, we celebrate May the 4th be with you as a thing and tomorrow being of course revenge of the fifth ha and uh one of the significant things between star wars and what i'm talking about with saul uh can actually be demonstrated with uh a thing in sex of the return of the jedi where in the start of uh, uh, episode four, when we first meet Luke Skywalker, uh, he is a humble farmer's son who rises to becoming a Jedi Knight uh, and is following Joseph Campbell's thing about the hero with a thousand fate. The hell alarm did I set for... Oh, yeah, of course. I wasn't expecting to be audiobooking something else right now, this time into the night, but this one is uh, special, and it's one of those things with the energy in the night and everything uh, and other things I can sense around this where, the like, it's... And, you know, quarantine hours... Uh, which is also part of why I can do this podcast and however long it takes to audiobook uh, 
a chapter from something that could be like two hours. We'll see what this comes out to. Uh, but in episode six, uh, well, in the first episode, uh, for Luke is dressed in white. He's, uh, you know, one of the good heroes and all that, these signifiers. But in six, uh, he's changed into black, where some people get a lot into the fact that Luke has turned to the dark side or is struggling with the dark side. Uh, and I'm not going to get into that so much as we have spoken about Saul's clothing and the fact that The thing with Luke's clothing is a neat um, observation, but it's not as deep or uh... the thing about Saul's clothing and the significance of it is that Saul is a bad king. That's the whole thing of the character. He is uh, comical from the very beginning when Samuel picks him because he's tall, because he wants someone who looks kingly. But otherwise, Saul uh, is not that bright. He's always in the dark. He's always the last one to know anything. And... <laughs> He's always asking what's going on. Like, he is not a leader, manifestly and literally everything, except the fact that he's tall. Uh, this is why there's a comic element to the character and the way that he's painted by the brilliant original writer of Samuel, uh, whatever his name was. Uh, not going to get into gender things or whatever, um, just on that reflex. But uh, the book does have some really extraordinary portraits of women, though, of strong women and Paltiel early in uh, book two. There's this heartbreaking fucking thing in chapter two or three uh, concerning one of the daughters of Saul, who we're not going to get off onto that. That's way too far afield. And this is why I think more people unfamiliar with Star Wars should be watching them. And if you're not familiar with the Samuel saga and you get bored of Netflix shows where people... Uh, jump on planes and go somewhere for summer vacation. This is uh, some meaningful uh, stories and hugely entertaining. And I hope that y'all will be amused by what is coming up because while well, David very much like Luke is the son of a humble farmer or a moisture farmer, uh, whatever, you know, it's been ages, but uh, uh, 
you know, the start uh, of episode four when, you know, while David steps out to fight a giant for the hand of the king and great riches and all that, which is also a very fairy tale structure. And Robert Alter mentions that that's due to, uh, I believe I said, uh, I'm sure at the outset of this, but I'm using Alter's translation. Yeah. And some of his commentary and observations are going to be woven into this. But the Star Wars stuff, uh, more of that's going to be mine. The whole thing wouldn't be happening if by coincidence the name of the place where Saul consults with a witch on the evening of his fatal battle uh, and she gives him some really bad news. Uh <laughs> that uh, that is in a place called Endor. So the character, as she is known for all time, and for anybody who knows Star Wars, is a source of a different amusement, uh, is the Witch of Endor. So while we might not see any Ewoks in this story, uh we are going to have uh, some there is actually a fascinating parallel uh, one of those things where it suddenly like my mind goes uh, like was this god with a sense of humor this thing but like uh the force ghost thing with like Obi-Wan and, uh, you know, his uh, blue sparkly ghost wearing his Jedi robe and everything. Uh, that's literally right in what we're reading. And I'm giving you guys these heads up and talking about the motives because uh, I could just read you the thing and, even with explaining some of the things in the commentary off the cuff, it would be something, but I want everybody limbered up and thinking in these terms and sort of knowing a bit of this stuff in advance because Samuel is also very defined by his clothes and by having his cloak that uh, was knitted by his mother. Very sweet. Uh, and he is pissed when Saul uh, grabs at his uh, robe at one point and tears it. And he says, uh, uh, when he turns back, and so fucking typical of their relationship with Samuel, uh, that he says, uh, God has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. Uh, and that's the, uh, the most blatant example of that motif uh, with the hem of Saul's clothing and the state of Saul's kingship because, uh, and again, it's rich and layered language. So understanding this stuff, you can make other things of it as you will. And I 
encourage you to read more of the book than what I'm reading. And uh, if you want to know some more stuff about Sam and uh, the prophet Samuel and Saul, the very first thing that I recorded on this podcast was chapter 15, uh, Under the Ban, and talking about the relationship between Samuel and Saul. Uh, if you're interested to go back there, uh, before I got to any of the literature, I was starting with audiobooking this epic saga and the possibility that in this comic, tragical, uh, hugely bipolar uh, arc that um, Saul may actually be at the inverse of, uh, he might be the one to disprove Joseph Campbell. We'll see by the end of this. But uh, while Saul is constructed in a lot of ways to be a mirror of David and showing a bad king and a good king and all that stuff, uh, because of that and because of David, the shepherd boy into the king, which is the hero's journey, uh, we're going to just do the end of Saul's journey. And that will be the end of act one. Um, Yeah. Yep. We're going to get to that one thing right at the end. So I won't say that. The thing about Absalom that I've alluded to a few times. And now, <laughs> uh, just as much as Saul's clothing, you'll know that there's something important uh, coming up that will also be thematic in book two and generally in literature and for that matter uh very much in real life in the very most realist possible way uh and on that note and from that point uh and fucking finally at 21 minutes future adam when you're cutting this 21 minutes into this chunk is when the actual fucking story starts being read. And uh, just a bit before the desk needs to be flipped. Chapter 28, first book of Samuel, Robert Alter translation and some of the commentary. Uh, and Samuel had died and all Israel mourned him and they buried him in Ramah in his town that is, in his hometown. And Saul had taken away the ghosts and the familiar spirits from the land. Uh, and this is a long but very important note. So uh, while there's an important grammatical note to uh, the pluperfection of the second obituary notice for Samuel, uh, you'll still get it from 
that opening, which is important, but regarding the ghosts and familiar spirits, um, the two Hebrew terms, ovat and yidonim, are generally paired and both refer to the spirits of the dead. The latter is derived from the verbal root yidik, to know, and it's just a couple of letters without, uh, uh, excuse me, it's 1.31 a.m., uh, <laughs> um, vowels, uh, no vowels in general in this story, excuse me for mispronunciations of anything cited in uh, other languages. Uh, that I don't know, but <laughs> this happens to be the verbal root yidik uh, something to know, and so prepares the way for the reappearance of the theme of withheld knowledge that has been stalking Saul since the beginning of his story. Again, Saul is ignorant. Saul doesn't. He's always the last to know something, anything. The ghosts and familiar spirits are linked metonymically with the necromancers who call them up. It is the latter who, of course, would have been the actual object of Saul's purge. But the terms there themselves primarily designate the spirits. Biblical views about post-mortem existence tend to fluctuate. Often, the dead are thought to be swallowed up in the pit, Sheol, where they are simply silenced, extinguished forever. Sometimes, the dead are imagined as continuing a kind of shadowy afterlife in the underworld, rather like the spirits of the dead in Book 11 of the Odyssey. Following on this latter view, Necromancy in the ancient Hebrew world is conceived not as mere hocus-pocus, but as a potentially efficacious technology of the realm of spirits which, however, has been prohibited by God, who wants no human experts interfering in this realm. Saul, then, has been properly upholding monotheistic law, reflected in Leviticus, in prescribing, proscribing necromancy, but in, his but in his desperation, he is now about to violate his own prohibition. Bum, bum, bum. And the Philistines gathered and came and camped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. And Saul saw the Philistine camp, and he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Saul, the cowardly first king of Israel, in every way the opposite of David. Uh, and Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him, neither by dreams, nor by the Urim, nor by prophets. And the Urim, uh, the note here is 
uh, for the Lord uh, did not actually it doesn't define it here and I am already making a billion asides I'm not going to explain that right now uh, Saul said to it oh no sorry the note the Lord did not answer uh, one last time Saul is excluded from divine knowledge all the accepted channels for its conveyance being enumerated here dream interpretation oracular device prophecy and Saul said to his servants seek me out a ghost wife that I may go to her and inquire through her and his servant said to him there is a ghost wife at Endor with a uh, hyphen between N and Dor and Saul disguised himself and put on different clothes and there we go Saul in his clothing he's going in disguise he's uh obviously it's a simple action and you can say oh what so he's going in disguise but this has been written out by hand for thousands of years every word counts and you need to understand how loaded the language is so there's something beautiful even in this little notice of the fact that he uh, leaps to mind as uh, uh, Thor in Ragnarok when he's going in disguise. Uh, if you've seen it, you know the scene. Anyway, uh, where Bruce is wearing Tony's clothes and Thor... Uh, I imagine that Saul is wearing a similar kind of disguise and he put on different clothes and he went and different clothes, not as the king, but in different clothes. Uh, again, word by word, every single word, thousands of years. And then it was the first thing that was put into print and we're nearly at the end of, uh, this one so i'm gonna uh pull back uh after just saying uh conjure me pray a ghost uh but so he went he together with two men and they came to the woman by night and he said conjure me pray a ghost and summon up the one i say to you and before we get to what the woman said back, it is 1.37 a.m., May the 4th. We're going to cut this off and come back to the first words of the witch. And remember that first words matter most. Uh, the first things people say, like when Saul's very first words are, uh, we should turn back lest our father cease worrying about the lost sheep and start worrying about us. We're going to know what the primary concern of this witch is. I was terrified for a moment there when it said uploading failed. Oh my God. After the thing, the last segment, uh, and because it's 1.41 a.m. I, you know, the 
quarantine hours thing, but I don't try to push it. It is only three chapters to the end of this. Uh, but if I had to re-record part one and all the stuff in it, uh, I would really, really not be happy about that. Um, and the thing you would hear would not be so cheerful. Uh, and I'm just realizing right before I start this, I'm going to save changes uh, to this, what I've got so far. Okay, cool. Uh, Anchor makes this so easy once you get the hang of it and the transitions and stuff. Uh, it is 1.43 a.m. And I am going to plow through this. Uh because it's only three chapters and it is May the 4th and this is the end. Uh, if I'm going to do a crossover and the witch of Endor, like all of it's, uh, all of both sagas are marvelous and speak to everyone. But in this moment, uh, all of these are speaking to me at an extraordinarily high volume. And I'll try to, as always, I uh, keep it uh, at a, you know, tone and speak slowly, uh, even though there's so much to be excited about. If you're, shut up, read the thing. Okay. So picking up from where we just were. Uh, Saul in Disguise and Going to See a Witch. If you have the book, uh, David's story, Robert Alter, there are a few notes about the exact linguistic uh, stuff about the witch saying uh, specifically you yourself know, but I'm only going to read the uh, note here that pertains to the larger stuff and that I've been referencing about Saul and his clothing, uh, where Saul disguised himself and put on different clothes. And this is the note, uh, in the book, assuming that you might not be aware of it elsewhere or have just heard, uh, uh, the previous parts of this podcast. The narrative motivation is obvious. As the very ruler who has made necromancy a capital crime, see verse 9, and again, this is uh, 1st Book of Samuel 28, uh, line 9 for this. Uh, Saul can scarcely come to engage the services of the necromancer unless he is disguised as a commoner. But his disguise also is the penultimate instance of the motif of royal divestment. As we have seen, clothing is associated with Saul's kingship. The torn or cut garment is the tearing of his kingship, and among the ecstatics surrounding Samuel, Saul stripped himself naked. Now, in an unwitting symbolic... also. Uh, that is the origin of the now sort of underused phrase, 
uh, is Saul too among the prophets, uh, stripped himself naked. Now, now, in an unwitting symbolic gesture, he divests himself of his royal garments before going to learn of his own impending death. Bum, bum, bum. Get the book. The notes are good. Uh, that's the only one for this page that I'm reading. Uh, but the others are of interest as well. Uh, and for anyone who has this, Yalkut Shimoni 2-247-139. I don't know what that means, but it's a midrash related to uh, this moment, this exchange. Uh, the Saul disguised himself and put on different clothes and he went, he together with two men and they came to the woman by night and he said, conjure me, pray, a ghost and summon up the one I say to you. And the woman said to him, look, you yourself know what Saul did, that he cut off the ghosts and the familiar spirits from the land and why do you entrap me to have me put to death? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no blame will befall you through this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I summon up for you? And he said, Samuel, summon up for me. And this, folks, is the reason that I've taken about an hour of talking and giving y'all context for reading this and having everybody be able to follow the action and the depth of it. And you got to imagine, uh, uh, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. That uh, uh, effect. Anywho. Um... Samuel, summon up for me. And I'm not stopping for uh, the, like, most of this page, 174 in the David story. Most of the... It's actually only six lines of this page are story. The rest is two notes that I'm not going to go into, uh, partly because, obviously that would take up too much other time. Also, this is my interpretation. Uh, and now we're getting to uh, the real swing of the action of the last three chapters. So, and the woman saw Samuel and she screamed in a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why did you deceive me when you are Saul? And the king said to her, Do not fear, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, A god do I see rising up from the earth. And he said to her, What does he look like? And she said, An old man rises up, and he is wrapped in a cloak, like a Jedi. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed to the ground and did obeisance, like, uh, if you don't know the word, you know, bowing or uh, kneeling down. 
And Samuel said, Why have you troubled to sum- troubled me to summon me up? And Saul said, I am in dire straits. And uh, hit me up on Twitter if uh, you know whether or not this is the first use of that phrase, the same as head and shoulders is, uh, originates here to describe Saul and don't take it to heart appears elsewhere. Uh, Twitter at time posting currently 1.50 a.m. May the 4th. Saul, I am in dire straits and the Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me and no longer answers me, neither through prophets nor dreams. And I called to you to let me know what I should do. And Samuel said, And why do you ask me when the Lord has turned away from you and become your foe? And the Lord has done to you as he spoke through me. And the Lord has torn the kingship from your hand and given it to your fellow man, to David. Inasmuch as you did not heed the voice of the Lord and you did not carry out his burning wrath against Amalek, and that is uh, the thing in chapter 15, the first podcast I did. If you want to know more, Go back there, listen to that. Uh, His burning wrath against Amalek. Therefore has the Lord done this thing to you this day. He's still taking Samuel to task, even after he's dead. (laughs) Um, And the Lord shall give Israel too, together with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow... You and your sons are with me. The camp of Israel, too, shall the Lord give into the hands of the Philistines. And uh, this one, I'm going to read one of the notes uh, uh, and not talk about even the others, just that you should get the book and read it if you are still listening. Uh I'm sorry for all these useless self-referentials, but uh, you should get and read this story and this translation in particular or the Bible in your bedside drawer if you have it, because regardless of the translation, the conflict is the exact same. This is just uh, a smoother translation an understanding of original meanings. Uh, Robert Alter, all hail. Um, something. Um, this thing to you this day. And the Lord shall get. Oh, right. Uh, this is the line. Um, for 19, note for 19, and tomorrow you and your sons are with me. Saul, having come to seek advice on the eve of a great battle, is given a denunciation, concluding with a death sentence, conveyed in these words with spooky immediacy as the ghost of Samuel beckons Saul and his sons down into the underworld. This entire scene is conceivably one of the inspirations from Macbeth's encounter with the three witches, though the biblical writer, 
in contrast to Shakespeare, places it as the penultimate moment of his doomed king's story, the camp of Israel too. There is no need to perform textual surgery on this sentence simply because it repeats the burden of the first sentence of the verse. It would be perfectly in character for Samuel to rub in the news of the imminent catastrophe. Not only will you and your sons perish, but, as I have said, all your forces will be defeated by the Philistines, your kingship ending in wholesale failure. And Saul hastened and flung himself full length on the ground and was very frightened by Samuel's words. Neither did he have strength, for he had eaten no food all day and all night, which is a thing he's done uh, earlier in the books, uh, chapter 14. If uh, And this is the thing, it's motifs large and small. That's a uh, reference that, you know, if you know the language and you read the book, that I got that right off. And also, if you were reading it, just having opened the book and not knowing all this other stuff, uh, it's like, uh, oh, he had eaten no food all day and all night. Like, uh, you know, it's just a thing that's sad, but it's a significant focus of chapter 14. Um, and the woman came to Saul and saw that he was very distraught, distraught. And she said to him, look, your servant has heeded your voice. And I took my life in his hands and heeded your words that you spoke to me. And now you on your part, pray heed to the voice of your servant. Meaning I think, uh, herself, this is, I'm not going to slow down, but this is biblical language where some of it is ambiguous and some of this is because it was being written out by hand and so to not repeat writing out someone's name over and over by hand unless it's important uh that we get these my hands and heated your words that you spoke to me some of these constructions and emphases on who exactly is speaking. And some of this is biblical in general, but I think Samuel, uh, with this translation, but even without, uh, especially, I mean, even without or in the original, uh, is a transcendent work of literature. Um, and if you're stuck in quarantine, definitely worth uh, engaging with as much as Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. Uh, or Star Wars, and uh, May the Fourth. Serendipity, huh? Um, and now on your part, pray heed the voice of your servant. This is the witch speaking. And I shall put before you a morsel of bread and eat, that you may have strength when you go on the way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. And his servants pressed him, and the woman as well, and he, he heeded their voice and arose from the ground and sat upon the couch, which does not have a footnote. <laughs> but uh, if you look up First Samuel 28, 23, uh, I don't know what the other translations might say, 
but apparently they had couches in the Bronze Age, so they must also have had bronze springs, but we're not going to get off to that. Anywho, and the uh, final note of the chapter is a haunting and specific uh, point that uh, is, again, one to Robert Alter for teaching me and allowing me to uh, pass on in this form. Uh, and the woman had a stall-fed calf in the house, and she hastened and butchered it and took flour and kneaded it and baked it into flatbread uh, and maybe sourdough if she was in quarantine. Uh, <laughs> fad and set it before Saul and before his servants and they ate and they arose and went off on that night and why you may ask uh, does that matter does a bunch of this matter uh, or is this uh, the note that the chapter ends on and I'm glad you are asking and thinking. Uh, and Alter has an answer for us. Note on 24, the woman had a stall-fed calf. It would have taken several hours to accomplish this slaughtering and cooking and baking. One must imagine Saul sitting in the house at Endor brooding or darkly baffled, or perhaps a little catatonic. It is an odd and eerie juncture of the story. David has already twice been saved from death and then from blood guilt by women. Saul is now given sustaining nurture by a woman, but only to regain the strength needed to go out to the battlefield where he will die. Chapter 29. And the Philistines gathered all their camps at Aphek. I'm not going to spell out all the uh, words and names because you can follow along or not. But this particular, this is not a recording to stop and explain after Aphek, A-P-H-E-K, I'm not going to do that for every name that comes up and uh, country and nation and stuff. Uh, Aphek. While Israel was encamped by the spring in Jezreel, and the Philistine overlords were advancing with hundreds and with thousands, and David and his men were advancing at the rear with Achish, who is king of the Philistines, and David is, at this point in the story, the bodyguard to the king of the Philistines after Saul tried to skewer him and chased him out because uh, he was jealous and chased him out of Israel. And it must have been awkward when David got to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, and saying, uh, threw, him on, threw himself on their mercy. But that's earlier in the story, again, very worth reading this saga. 
And the Philistine captain said, who are these Hebrews? And H, and that's actually also uh, insulting because uh, the distinction they make with being Israelites, Hebrews were the slaves in Egypt. So whenever another nation uh, says these Hebrews, uh, that is basically using that word as a slur. And that's something I'm getting from the commentary as well. But uh, now that we're rocking and rolling, I am skipping most of the commentary. The stuff with the witch is the main reason I was recording this. And uh, the action is picking up to a head. So uh, more action, fewer notes. Here we go. Um. I don't know why it says 133 and 180, why I made that note here. Next to the thousands and tens of thousands, uh, also repetition. But uh, the Philistine captain said, who are these Hebrews? And Achish said to the Philistine captains, is this not David, servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these many days or years? And I have found him, I think it's 14 months uh, in Ziklag and uh, the land of the Philistines. But uh, these many days and years, and I have found nothing amiss in him from the day he fell in with me until this day. And the Philistine captains were enraged with him. And the Philistine captain said to him, Send the man back and let him go back to his place that you set aside for him there, that's Ziklag, and let him not come down with us into battle, so that he become not our adversary in battle. For how would this fellow be reconciled with his master? Would it not be with the heads of our men? Is this not David, for whom they sing out in the dances, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? And Achish called to David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you are upright, and your going into the fray with the camp has been good in my eyes. For I, and that's a phrase that we encounter a lot, good in my eyes, meaning, uh, and, hmm. Well, I'll just read the bit uh, here that pertains to, this is a longer note, but on that, uh, for line six, good in my eyes, I have found no evil in you. This entire exchange turns on the neat antithesis between good and evil, rather like the exchange between Saul and David outside the cave near Engedi. Achish will go on to say quite extravagantly that David is as good in my eyes as a messenger of God. The reader, however, may well wonder whether David is in fact so unambiguously good. And the answer is no. If you read the thing, uh, that's one of the reasons this book can be compared pretty easily to Game of Thrones, uh, because there is so much moral gray in the Samuel saga, and I think is one of the reasons that people know what uh, one or two stories, Goliath and Bathsheba, 
but the rest of it uh, is fascinating and exciting, but it is not straightforward always who is good and bad. And a lot of it is uh, HBO level sex and violence. So lots of fun, uh, especially the violence. Um, Atrus says to David upright, uh, good in my eyes, for I have found no evil in you from the day you came to me until this day. But in the eyes of the Philistine overlords, you are not good. And so now return and go in peace, and you shall do no evil in the eyes of the Philistine overlords. And David said to Achish, But what have I done, and what have you found in your servant from the day I appeared in your presence until this day, that I should not come and do battle with the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good as in my eyes as a messenger of God, but the Philistine captains have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. And so now, rise early in the morning, you and the servants of your Lord who have come with you, and rise early in the morning when it is just brightening and go. And David rose early, he and his men, to go in the morning to return to Philistine country while the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And that is both near the end of the desk at 25 minutes, and that is the end of chapter 29. Next, the penultimate chapter of the Samuel Saga, chapter 30. Uh, and it is 2.08 a.m. Cruising altitude, something and something, 25.25. Two eleven a.m. Cruising, uh, May the fourth, twenty twenty, chapter thirty, book of Samuel, uh, the this will be continuing right from last. So, um, first book of Samuel, chapter thirty nearly at the penultimate uh, chapter of the first act of this saga. And bear with me a moment. Cool. Um. <clears throat> And I had just gone back a few pages because in looking at this next chapter, it brings up the Amalekites. And I wanted to note right at the start that uh, if you don't recognize that group of people immediately because you don't know the road from the Shire to uh, Rivendell or, uh, you know, the road between... Uh, the north down to King's Landing or across the Narrow Sea. This is, you know, you need to know the places, the peoples, 
uh, and some of them uh, are folks that no longer exist, like the Moabites, uh, whose uh, their what was their territory is now uh, Jordan. So very little is known of them, but that is several. That that is not even just a story that's that's uh so much of a thing from a for another time other times and for all time um but at the moment uh it's just relevant to mention them because that's what samuel was just throwing in saul's teeth and coming back from the dead not to say all is well with the force and shit, but uh, rather, uh, you idiot, this is why God tore the kingdom from you, because you didn't murder every living thing in Amalek, like I told you to back in chapter uh, 15. Uh, What is this sound of bleeding and mooing in my ears? Uh, This... Other story, look at my very first podcast. It's important. Uh, And I mention them because we're about to get to them being very dramatic in relation to David. Chapter 30. And it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they had struck Ziklag and burned it to the ground. And they had taken the women captive, from the youngest to the oldest, they put no one to death. And they drove them off and went on their way. And David and his men with him came to the town, and look, it was burned to the ground, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. And David and the troops who were with him raised their voices and wept until there was no strength left in them to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelite, and Abigail, wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And those are names that, while you may know, and I know a number of, Abigail's and Abby's, uh, Ahinoam is less well-known. And uh, if you think of Abigail, it's probably Abigail Adams rather than a biblical name. But the story with uh, uh, her former husband, her conveniently, suddenly... uh, a widow, shortly after meeting David, one of those morally gray, you know, reasons that they don't point you toward this very interesting uh, and often morally ambiguous uh, saga. It's fascinating uh, and very worth, I've said it a bunch. And David was in dire straits and noticed that uh, that phrase... Uh, pops up again. So I am going to read the note uh, that goes with that. And David was in dire straits, for the troops thought to stone him, for all the troops were embittered, every man over his sons and his daughters. And so 
long note for line six. And David was in dire straits, for he thought for the troops thought to stone him. Not as fun as you might think. The initial phrase might momentarily be construed as referring to David's feelings, and he felt very distressed, but it is immediately made clear that the reference is to the practical predicament in which he suddenly finds himself in relation to his men. As before, David's real emotions remain opaque. We know only of his participation in the public orgy of weeping. This moment is also a vivid reminder, as are others in the Saul David story, of how precarious political power is. David, no, that needs a moment. Precarious political power. David, the charismatic and brilliant commander who has led his men through a host of dangers, suddenly discovers that these hard-bitten warriors are ready to kill him because of this disastrous turn of events. It was he, after all, who drew them to the north with the Philistine army, leaving Ziklag exposed. David took strength in the Lord his God. He finds encouragement in the face of mortal despair, specifically, as the next verse explains, by calling for the oracle. In this fashion, he staves off the assault his men are contemplating by dramatically showing them that they still have means of redress against the Amalekites and that he has a special, and that he has a special uh, channel of communication with God. Um embittered every man over his sons and his daughters, meaning uh, embittered over their being kidnapped. And for all everybody knows, uh, when they come back and nobody's there, uh, that they're dead. Like, you know, Samuel told Saul to kill all the Amalekites, their men, their women, their children, their cattle, everything that... Uh, uh, has blood in its veins to spill all of it. That's what it means to put a nation under the ban. And David took strength from the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, son of Ahimelech, bring forth prey the ephod. And Abiathar brought forth the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Shall I overtake it? And he said, capital H, he said, Pursue, for you will surely overtake it, and you will surely rescue. And that's a biblical ellipsis where, because of the writing it out over and over, hand by hand, uh, he doesn't, you don't need to write, you will surely rescue your wives and sons and daughters, because in this phrase, it doesn't matter to clarify that. You understand what is happening. And David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and that number is probably significant for reasons, but not stopping 
with him, and they came to the Wadi Besor, and those who to be left stayed behind. And David continued the pursuit, he and 400 men, and the 200 men who were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Besor stayed behind. And they found an Egyptian man in the field and took him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate, and they gave him water. And he ate, and his spirits revived, for he had eaten no bread and drunk no water three days and three nights. And this one, I'm going to read a bit of uh, the commentary, because frankly, uh, this one I haven't studied. I don't know uh, why it's significant, but thank Alter. Uh, We're all going to know something here. Uh, Note, they found an Egyptian man in the field. This is the first of three memorable instances in the David story in which a foreigner brings intelligence of a dire event, although in this case, the subject of the intelligence is not the event itself, but the whereabouts of the perpetrators. And uh, for he had eaten no bread and drunk no water, the act of abandoning a sick slave in the desert to... Oh, that makes sense. Abandon... That's awful, obviously, but that makes sense why the guy was out here for this time and hadn't had any sustenance. Uh... Abandoning a sick slave in the desert to perish of thirst and hunger dispels any illusions we may have harbored about the humanity of the Amalekites. Fockelman has proposed a correspondence, uh, another biblical scholar you can get from the fact that he's being cited in commentary on this, but uh, if you're interested to look into other biblical commentators, in which case, I'm glad that you found this podcast uh, and suspect that uh, you are enjoying this. I hope <laughs> I hope everyone who's hearing this enjoys this. I hope all of you are safe and well. Um, hum, hum, hum. Fockelman has proposed a correspondence in his calculation, also a synchronicity between the starving Egyptian and the fasting Saul at Endor, which is interesting because we've just read that and I'm not going to stop and reflect on it. But if you want to compare 1 Samuel 30, line 12, uh, to Saul's fast in chapter 28 and previously the whole fucking issue of it and uh, Jonathan eating some honey and all the trouble this causes, look back at chapter 14. (laughs) Um, Bread and he ate and they gave him water and they gave him a slice of pressed figs and two raisin cakes and he ate and his spirits revived, uh, for he had eaten no bread and drunk no water three days and three nights. And David said to him, 
To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am an Egyptian lad, the slave of an Amalekite man, and my master abandoned me, for I have been sick now three days. We were on our part, uh, we on our part had raided the Negeb of the Chetharites and that of Judah and the Negeb of uh, Caleb and uh, on this one, I'm not stopping on any of it to explain or look up the all these different peoples. But uh, but if you want to join this fandom, uh, feel free to look those all up. This is 1 Samuel 30, 13, 14, and moving on from here. Um, we on our part had raided the Negeb of the Cherethites and that of Judah and the Negeb of Caleb and Ziklag we burned to the ground. And David said to him, will you lead me down to this raiding party? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not put me to death and that you will not hand me over to my master. Then I shall lead you down to this raiding party. And he led him down and look, you know, that's, uh, this isn't noted here, but that's an interesting instance. Just the absence of, uh, oh, holy shit, there's a David Han Solo thing. Wow, this, this is a special night. Uh, <laughs> because uh, when he says, swear to me, uh, that this and this, then I shall lead you down to this raiding party. It just then says, and he let him down. And as the note mentioned just a little before about David being opaque, a thing that Alter pulls out very well in his translation, uh, there's a Han Solo moment with Saul's first daughter that David... I believe his second daughter, but the day, the daughter that David marries, uh, who is not one of the ones uh, that has been kidnapped by the Amalekites for reasons. Uh, she comes back in Act Two, and that's where Paul Tiel comes in that I alluded to, possibly in a, another chunk of the recording before, uh, but. Right now, the fact is, uh, oh, the the uh, the Han Solo thing, uh, where um, that when she first meets David or something with him, uh, she says, "I love you," and uh, then uh, something else happens, but it doesn't. Uh, it's could be. Uh, David just saying, I know. <laughs> but David, uh, there's a lot that David doesn't say. The more you look at that, that becomes really interesting in uh, the artistry of the author and the way that he shows us things that David does, uh, but he very rarely or uh, the 
times are significant that we actually get uh, any sense of what David is actually thinking. And that's especially notable when this uh, story has so much uh, extraordinary psychological observation or observations of human nature like that of Saul, who is a very complex character and you can see what drives him. You see what his fears and obsessions are and stuff. You have no idea what David is actually thinking. Uh, and now that that's been pointed out to you, flip through the book, uh, look at David as a character and see what you judge of him as a man from looking at his actions uh, when there is very little or basically nothing to go on about how David feels about anything or why he's doing anything. He has an agenda, but he really does keep it entirely to himself. And you can make of that very much what you will. Um, Slave says, swear to me, uh, you won't hand me over to my master. David doesn't, that he let him down. And look, they were sprawled out all over the ground, eating and drinking and reveling with all the vast booty that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. And David struck them from daybreak till the evening of the next day, and not a man of them got away, except for 400 lads who rode off on camels and fled. Uh, <laughs> that uh, doesn't sound like not a man of them got away, but okay, narrator. Uh, <laughs> this sometimes subversive or humorous, because that is intentional uh, as well. And emphasized by uh the translation but um not a man of them got away except for 400 guys and david rescued all that the amalekites had taken and his own two wives david rescued and nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest from sons to daughters to booty all the and to be clear uh that's like not the popcorn, but actual pirate spooty uh, that, um, you know, booty or taking from, uh, sorry, I just noticed a note that I want to refer to later. Um, It's something that has to do with the particular verbs being used in a connection with Lot back in Genesis um, 31.26, or comparing uh, as verbs used, and that's talking about Jacob with Rachel and Leah, uh, spelled differently. But holy shit, we're in a whole different book, but there is also uh, Leah, who's the... Uh, wife of a patriarch, not a princess in a galaxy far, far away, but I'll take it. Um, 
booty, all that they had taken for themselves, David restored it all. And David took all the sheep and the cattle. They drove before them that livestock and said, this is David's booty. And David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with David, so he had them stay at the Wadi Bazaar. And they came out to greet David and to greet the troops who were with him. And David approached with the troops and asked how they fared. And every wicked and worthless man of the men who had gone with David spoke up and said, Inasmuch as they did not go with us, we'll give them nothing from the booty that we rescued, only each man, his wife, and his children, that they may drive them off and go. And David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. For he has guarded us, and he has given into our hands the raiding party that came against us. And who would listen to you in this matter? Rather, as the share of him who goes down into battle is the share of him who stays with the gear, together shall they share. And so from that day, hence, it became a set practice in Israel until this day. And David came to Ziklag, and he sent from the booty to the elders of Judah to his friends, saying, Here is a gift for you from the booty of the Lord's enemies to those in Bethel, and to those in Ramoth-Negeb, and to those in Jatir, and to those in Eroer, and to theirs in Sifmoth, and to those in Esh... Uh, this one, I'm going to be clear. Uh, almost all of these are new to me, and uh, thank goodness that we have a wise commentator. Um to um, figure out who all these people are. But, uh, and to those in Arawar, and to those in Sifmoth, and to those in Ishtomia, uh, and to those in Rakal, and to those in the towns of the Jeremelite, and to those in the towns of the Kenite, and to those in Horma, and to those in Borashan, and to those in Ak, Athic, uh, Athach, and to those in Hebron, and in all the places where David with his men had moved about. And we're at again about 25 minutes. The next chapter is the last chapter of Act One. And uh, with a few minutes, uh, I am only going to read the second of the notes because it, uh, like the stuff that people get frustrated with the Bible for, the Adam begat, Seth begat, 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 uh, you know, the, like here is that he sent those to those in Arawar and those in Sifmoth and like eight people there. Uh, here's the note explaining that. Uh, he sent from the booty to the elders of Judah, his friends. This act shows David the consummate political man, oh so much, shoring up support among the uh, sundry leaders of his home tribe of Judah, uh, hence the catalog of place names. 
and preparing for himself a base in Hebron at the end of the catalog, the principal town of Judah where he will soon be proclaimed king. Some scholars have been troubled by, to his friends, Yehu, which would normally mean to his friend singular and have sought to amend it. Kimchi, how... <laughs> It's the name of another commentator, but Kimchi, however, persuasively argues that the ostensibly singular noun can be legitimately read as a plural on the basis of other biblical precedents, and that the reference to friends makes good political sense. These are the same elders of Judah who provided cover for David during the period when he was hiding out from Saul uh, in his own tribal territory. The verb move about, hithalach, in the wrap-up verse of this section, is an allusion to precisely this period, for it recalls David's flight with his men from Saul at Keilah in 2313, and they moved about wherever they could. And this is the end of chapter 30. Next up, the very end of the book, it is 2.38 a.m., and I don't expect to be up till the dawn, but I think uh, this recording is, uh, this is something important. The time is immaterial. It's obsessive to keep mentioning it, but the thing I'm doing uh, matters outside of time. Two forty one AM May the fourth be with you all and at last we are on the final chapter of Act One of the Samuel Saga, otherwise known if you're following along as first book of Samuel, chapter thirty one. Uh and in the moment that it took to, or minute or two that it took to process the last chunk of this recording, uh, as per uh, Jonathan, is Saul's son, in chapter 14, with that whole thing about Saul fasting and making everybody, all the Israelites, uh, fast, that Jonathan has a taste of honey uh, it will brighten your eyes, and I have done that. My eyes have been rebrightened, uh, and here we go to Mount Gilboa. And this whole thing about the uh, the hero's journey, not necessarily. No, it is wisdom as well. It's being guided by a wise man like Obi-Wan is to Luke. And it's almost like the person who uh, I would say like the person who wrote the book <laughs> 
of Samuel new Star Wars, but no, it's not that. This is the magic of uh, of these books, really of fiction, of well-written literature uh, and storytelling, is that there's so much to take away and so much to discuss or identify with the characters or name your kids after them, uh, if you've ever met a Jonathan. Uh, that um, it's the exact inside out. It's like, uh, this is the, you know, teaching is a way of learning thing or saying this out loud, but it's the exact, exact opposite because Saul does have a Obi-Wan-ish, uh, mentor figure in Samuel who wears a long robe and is a grumpy old man, you know, is like those are characteristics of the dude. Uh, as with Obi-Wan, obviously, the, you know, uh, reclusive ex-Jedi master, everybody who hasn't seen it, episode four, A New Hope, Star Wars, uh, check that out. Um, but Samuel is the exact inside out. He chooses Saul for his own reasons that I'm not going to get into the subtext of all that. Alter does, and, uh, and you can find it if you look, uh, understanding that these are deeply, uh, what we would call psychological character portraits, but just the observations of human nature and interactions. Uh, Samuel was definitely not moved by God uh, to see Saul as king, explicitly not, in chapter 8 when he's arguing against having a king at all. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, He's, uh, Samuel's like literally an anti-mentor. That whole thing of, uh, like you break down Star Wars and this is amazing that all this stuff fell together that I would just be in this dual mind frame and see this this way. But not only is uh, Saul the inverse of, uh, as we know, generally, that he's the inverse of David and everything that shows that David is a good leader. There are things that demonstrate again and again of Saul's ignorance and the fact that he's a bad leader. And Samuel is constantly pissed with him, is constantly sniping at him for being a poor choice of king. Uh, and it's hilarious. <laughs> But uh, but also, he's kind of an anti-mentor. Like, Saul is not only the exact inverse of a heroic uh, arc and character, but also we end with uh, his mentor, the guy that he goes to seek advice from, even after Samuel has died, that Saul is willing 
to go against his own prohibition and the Levitical laws of, you know, not consorting with necromancers and witches and shit, that he uh, does all that. And in some people's estimation on single acts, uh, you know, that he dooms himself by this alone or whatever. But uh, he calls someone back from the dead and he calls back Samuel uh, for advice and guidance. And Samuel mocks him and throws his past mistakes in his face and says, you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> it's uh, when you say it that way. Or you uh, know the characters sufficiently well to see this and reading it all. Um, I hope you're amused. And if you haven't read these, that you might be entertained enough to think that uh, it might be worth uh, picking up the Bible instead of uh, rewatching the original trip or the, the to consider even watching the prequels because there's nothing else to do uh, except, you know, now Mandalorian. But obviously that's not what we're here for. Chapter 31. And meanwhile, the Philistines were battling against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, uh, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavy against Saul, and the archers, the bowmen, found him, and he quaked with fear of the archers. And there's a long, uh, there are some notes here, but I'm going to just read the thing and can come back for a few of those if need be. And Saul said to his armor bearer, again, bringing back Saul's armor and uh, these things, uh, draw your sword and run me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and run me through and abuse me. And there's a biblical ellipsis because it doesn't need to clarify uncircumcised men. If you're writing something out thousands of years uh, in the biblical Hebrew, it just says uncircumcised. So come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor bearer did not want to do it because he was very frightened and Saul took the sword and fell upon it. And the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead and he too fell upon his sword and he died with him. And Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men as well, together on that day. And the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, and they abandoned the towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. And it happened the next day, that the Philistines came to strip the slain, and they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, 
And they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor, and they sent throughout the Philistine country to bring the tidings to the temples of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and his body they impaled on the wall of Bethshan. And the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, or Yabesh-Gilead, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. And every valiant fellow arose, and they went all night long, and they took Saul's corpse and the corpses of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came back to Jabesh and buried and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. And that is the end of Act 1. That is why they say there are two books of Samuel, and it's more proper to say the Samuel saga, because really the death of Saul is the end of the first act of this uh, magnificent uh, and... It's a demarcation point in this story. And uh, a few notes from those last couple pages. Uh, the burning of them. Cremation was not the usual Israelite practice, but it may be, as kimchi has proposed, that in this case the bodies were burned because the flesh had already begun to rot. And that's my immediate thought, and that's why the tight language, you know, leaves you things like that where you can draw an inference. But uh, if that, uh, if you were wondering why, if you know the discrepancy there and were wondering why, that would be it. And uh, that all his sons as well. There's also in uh, the Book of Chronicles, which covers some of these same events, uh, that Saul's head was put on display in the Temple of Dagon, uh, who is one of the Philistine, uh, the fish god, you know. Um, so... There is one thing, a uh, note uh, relating Saul uh, to your character in Judges. I'm going to read. And the uh, yeah, I'm not going to read the note to nine because it's the reason I've been repeating the thing about Saul's armor and Saul's clothing from the very beginning of this thing is really just to make the impact of the end as clear as it is, but uh, the thing of uh, Saul saying to his armor bearer, run me through before they capture me alive. Uh, like the urgent request of the dying Abimelech in Judges 9, with whom the dying Saul has sometimes been compared. I wouldn't know that. You probably wouldn't know that. You're welcome from me. You're welcome to alter. 
this wild ride. Um, very, very aware of the work that has gone before it. But so comparing him with this character from Judges, Saul's last wish will be denied him. The Philistines, though deprived of the opportunity to kill him, will decapitate his body and defile it by hammering it up on the wall of Bethshan. And somehow when people talk about the Bible as just a bunch of, you know, boring old rules and the thou shalt nots, uh, you need to give the Samuel saga a closer look because... Whether you're comparing it to Star Wars or Game of Thrones, it's damn good action and storytelling and all this stuff between the lines. And uh, this is, of course, the final humiliation of Saul uh, and the finale of that motif of that uh, when Samuel says when he's torn his cloak, you've torn the kingdom of Israel away. And when he gives his armor to David and is divesting himself of his kingly power. And when he goes to the witch and he goes in disguise and changes his clothes. And there's a reference earlier in a note to the thing with uh, Saul uh, naked amongst the prophets this time, it's not because he has stripped himself, but it is the final humiliation of the enemies uh, stripping uh, his body and cutting his head off, which is not the way uh, people would or should treat a king. And uh, in a way, very much is... Uh, the final is the conclusion to part of Samuel's whole argument in eight about the practice of the king and saying that uh, he will, uh, you know, take on power and uh, that he'll abuse his power and give shit to his friends and enslave you and ignore you when you cry out uh, for you. Well, it's two minutes to 3 a.m. And I've said a lot that matters and possibly a few things that don't. But I hope it has all been amusing. Uh, and there are things in the notes here. Uh, oh, there's one last. Uh, no, no. <laughs> there are two. I was about to fucking end this without Absalom, Absalom, Absalom. But uh, Antigone just caught my eye on the page. So I'm going to read this one last note uh, about impaling his body on the wall of Bethshan. And that is where we get to Absalom as well, um, ish, which is throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, there was a horror about leaving a corpse unburied. Compare, for example, the potency of this question in Sophocles' Antigone. Saul's corpse, moreover, 
is disfigured through decapitation and is mentioned that they left him out in the sun and all. Bethshan, or Beth Sheon, is a town about 11 miles to the southwest of Mount Gilboa, near the Jordan. If you care to look it up. And uh, very briefly, uh, after having shouted him out five times or so uh, over this, the reason that I had Absalom in mind right at the start of this as a comparison to Saul is the fact that, uh, and there are so many events and things that go on in and out of stuff with this uh, winding referential language, this music of motifs and uh, evocative language and stuff, uh, that that same thing, I will save the details for if you want to uh, read it because it's marvelous. Uh, uh, you know, uh, bloody political uh, war and everything. <clears throat> but at the end of Absalom's rebellion, when a point had been made at some point previously, and this is in book two, because this is one of the sons of David that he has not had yet. Um, but, uh, at this point in, uh, cause that's in book two, when David is ascended to fully be king after Saul, um, that Absalom has a monument built, something like a, uh, obelisk, a big old, you know, uh, monument for himself uh, for after he is dead. Uh, and after uh, his murder, uh, and again, not just a simple thing or like, you know, at the end of the movie when the hero and the bad guy uh, uh, struggle on a roof or, uh, you know, uh, there are a few, it's, it's not, uh, I'm thinking of Metropolis, the climax of that, where they're rolling around on the roof and there's drama, but, uh, I think that's where it comes from in film. That's the first time, uh, that thing was done and it's been, uh, done over, you know, so many times people don't know the thing they're stealing from, uh, over and over. But, uh, there's this whole thing about, uh, you know, Absalom's rebellion. He's a vain guy. Uh, and all of this ties in with, uh, his death. And, uh, I'll leave that one for you hanging between heaven and earth. Um, but the aftermath of it is the reason for that comparison all through, because uh, he was a rebellious son of David. He led a uprising against his father. And so 
uh, the men who uh, murder him in the uh, course of things uh, take his body and just dump it in the bushes and throw a bunch of rocks on top of him. There's this, uh, like it just said in the note, uh, about the horror of unburied bodies or the treatments of the dead and stuff. That's a theme just as deep as any of the ongoing political stuff in uh, this saga. It happens a few times, and these are some of the notable ones. Uh, Amasa, or Amasa, also springs to mind, uh, where a reasonable translation into even more modern uh, language than what Alter has done uh, might say, everyone stood there for a minute going, what the fuck? And, uh, you know, just happen. Uh, and on that last mystery, then, if you care to look it up or read further, uh, I will wish you all a good night. Happy May the 4th. Uh, be with you. May uh, return of the 5th tomorrow. Uh, and whatever day you happen to be listening to this, I hope it finds you well and safely quarantined. And in other cases than this episode, uh, where I'll be doing public domain fiction, I am open to suggestions and other reasons uh, you might reach out. You can also leave an audio message on these podcasts. I need to remember to say that as well. But uh, you can find me on Twitter at Time of Posting, and I'll be happy for recommendations of other things to read or other reasons you might want to reach out. So that finally being said, uh, good night, good morning, good luck, be well. Zagazan.